true crime podcast i'm hannah i'm kate and this is don't blame the mom so before we start anything just trigger warnings this is as we said a true crime podcast so a lot of the things that we talk about are very sensitive so feel free to skip through any parts that you don't want to hear and mm-hmm. um, just give it a little skip 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 yeah. <laughs> have a little skippy just have a little skip there um and that's you know and hopefully that will make some of it a bit more palatable exactly and for those of you who are able to push on through push on through yeah push on through <laughs> and take a deep breath guys because this is the second part of um a very very tough case mm-hmm. um a very well known case and um one of the most famous in british history as well so uh, this is actually we're on episode 19 now yay we're almost at 20 oh my god that's kind oh of like gosh. i feel like it's like a milestone yeah isn't it? 20 is gonna feel like a huge milestone yeah i mean it doesn't sound like much and we understand that it doesn't sound like much no but, but when you guys realize how long this actually takes feels <laughs> like a really long time see how long it takes two blondes trying to set up all this get up because we are all on our own today guys yes no techie sean no editor harry we are going it alone today so literally i'm actually yeah. kind of proud of us that we did this i know well, don't speak too soon yeah we on. could just be like talking into like into nothing and we might not we might not even be this recording might not be recording it that might not be recording be we'd have to do it, it is we'd have to do it all over again um i don't yeah. think i'd be able to oh no me neither <laughs> i'll just give up yeah i kind of like I'm when done. we've just finished one because then i can just go okay i'm gonna push that to the side and not think about them yes. for a while no more nightmares <laughs> some of them are just so awful Absolutely. but yeah i mean listen if there is any sound quality issues, do not blame Sean and do not blame Harry. It is a definite Kate and Hannah problem. It is definitely today, guys. But so. usually we do have them with us, but the way things have worked out, just with life being um, busy, yes. we couldn't get it to work Everyone's today. got their normal jobs to, uh, you know, cater to. Boo. I know, as Boo do we. to normal. That's what we just love doing these, though, don't we? I this know, is, we are enjoying it. This is... Very, very, uh, this is a bit of, I won't say relaxation time because that's absolutely not what it is, but it's definitely <laughs> something that we are really interested in. And hopefully, guys, you will be as well because this is going to be um, a really, really hard one, actually. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to the first part of this, do go back to last week's episode. So that'd be episode 18 where um, we will we kind of covered how Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, who are the Moors murderers, uh, ended up meeting at a workplace and together the two of them formed these evil plans to abduct and, and rape and kill young children and bury them up on the moors. It sounds like something from a horror film, but it really happened. Yes. So before we get started, we want to do a shout out to Matty on Insta, who has given us another case to add to the list. Yes. Thank you, Matty. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Carla, who has just started listening and loves the pod, apparently. Yeah. She's also got her mom involved, which is really Amazing. cute. I love it. A mom and daughter yeah. cri- true crime duo. I love it. I love it when, well, I mean, I, my family all really into true crime as well. Well, my sisters. I have a lot of sisters, guys. I've got four sisters. And we all actually really like true crime. Mm-hmm. And so do my like cousins in New Zealand and stuff. It really does seem to be like um, something that a lot of people can bond over in a way like yeah yeah and you know there's a lot of documentaries people like to watch together and things so if you do have friends that are interested in true crime as well feel free to recommend us if you um have liked 
our episodes so far. I love how she says it. Yeah. Feel, feel free. But if you please, hate us, please do recommend us. You don't need to say anything. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you to all those guys. And don't forget, if you have got any recommendations of cases you'd like us to cover, you can contact us on Insta, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and our email as well, all under the name Don't Blame the Mum. Yes, and our email is dumplingmama@gmail.com. Gmail, that's the one, yeah. So now uh, we left off last week after young, oh, really cute Keith Bennett. Those his picture is so sweet. Yeah, he's a cutie. Yeah, um, had just been unfortunately abducted and killed by the two evil killer couple. The two evil killer couple. The two evil people that are the killer couple part of the killer couple part yeah. of the killer couple ian and myra and so we're gonna um pick up from from after keith so um on the 26th of december 1964 brady and hinley visited a fun fair in ancoats which is the northern part of manchester city center so it's boxing day the pair are stalking around the fairground on the hunt for their next victim and when they spot 10 year old leslie ann downey who looked as though she was alone they approach her she'd been allowed to go to the fair with her sixpence pocket money and was expected home shortly she was standing by the rise when hindley walks over to her and purposely drops from shopping she'd bought at a local market brady then approaches after this and asks little leslie if she could help them carry their shopping to the car now leslie kindly agrees and once in their car they ask her to help them carry the packages into their house in Wardlebrook Avenue. So young Leslie, this Leslie's... is a slight change of um, mo. Yeah, it is. It is a slight change of mo of modus operandi. If I don't get that word in there today, <laughs> I will not rest. I easy actually tonight. don't know if you said the word modus operandi in episode eighteen. <gasps> you know what? Let's 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 record it again. <laughs> We're gonna have to go back. Come on. <laughs> Maybe we'll just have to get Scrap it. the other one and we'll do it again. <laughs> Maybe we'll just have to get it in a few times in this yeah. one to make up for it. I'm going to overdo it. You guys have to skip that part too. <laughs> Trigger morning, Hannah will say modus operandi way too much as usual. <laughs> so I just, it, the thing with this is that Leslie, she is their youngest victim and she was obviously going to go along with any adults who were going to say, can you help us with the shopping? Yeah. Can you get in the car and help us drive it to our house? She's never ever going to be able to to say no to two adults. She was a tiny young 10 year old. It's that thing of a child answering an adult. Sorry, I'm just uncomfortable with yeah. my chair. That thing of a child answering yeah. an adult or you know, doing what an adult would say because that's what we teach our children to do. Obey your elders, you know, respect exactly. them. Do as you're told, and especially mm. back then, of course, you know it was do as you're told, etc. Yeah, and you know she's at a fairground, she's, she's just, having fun. Yeah. Like this is a really exciting place. You do, um, it's not like a young kid's not going to think anything bad could happen at such no, a, a fun on totally. such a fun day out. You yeah, know, having the time of her life. Yeah. So Leslie agrees to go into their house and help them unpack their shopping. Once they've lured her inside their home, they pounce on her. She is forcibly undressed. I'm going to do another trigger warning here, guys, because yeah. this is a really harrowing and a really, it's a really tough one to listen to. Um, no matter how long ago it happened, it's still so shocking and continues to just boggle my mind. Mm. So Leslie's forcibly undressed. She's gagged, sexually assaulted, and made to pose for nine photographs by the couple. Hindley holds her down and actively participates participate in this assault something we know for a fact because these evil deviants are recording the whole thing on tape now this is very similar 
to another case we covered the ken and barbie mm. killers paul bernardo and that. carla homolka and that that doesn't happen till what the 90s but i mean the fact that and we can't tell you is, what episode it is <laughs> i have no idea what episode that was but i mean the fact that this is the 60s and these this couple are using the only recording device that's available then a tape a tape cassette recorder and um, the and box killers this. recorded too and they did as well. and they was another killer couple it seems to be like a killer couple thing did they the like toy recording box killer as well uh, yes he did he had a recording played to mm. her we're gonna have to cover him one day and we can handle it oh I don't know if I can I don't know I don't know that will be a tough it will be but I just found it strange that all these killer couples seem to really enjoy the recording of things they're just so it's, it's almost like they're instead of like watching a normal tv show let's watch that tape of that torture that we did or let's listen to that you know that murder that we that we you know carried out it's, have, it's crazy interestingly have you do you ever watch black mirror no well the new season's just come out and it's actually really good you know me i only watch reality tv or true crime well there's an episode in it and i don't want to do any well spoiler <laughs> <laughs> well spoiler alert. Yes. um but in it they there is it's about a serial there's a serial killer and they turn out to be a serial this no i won't say this bit but anyway there is video recordings in it oh. yeah so it could have been kind of inspired by these inspired these, by these, these real cases things, yeah. i just found it so interesting that it always seems to pop up with these types these these, these pairs these pairs of like-minded killers um so also in the background whilst they're recording is sounds of a door banging some crackling noises heavy footsteps and the song the little drummer boy which is a christmas song from a christmas album you can't ruin that song for me hannah i know and you know that you know when there's like it's christmas time and all the same songs play over and over again all the time and i love christmas i know but that song actually on repeat all the time i actually really like well it actually they were playing an album of christmas hits but mm, that one is is one. very clearly in. It's like a sixteen minute recording. So there would have been another one, but this one seems to crop up um, every time this is mentioned. Um, and now I can't not think of that when I hear the song. I wish you had ruined told it. Me. It's ruined it for me. <laughs> Sorry. I tell you what. Listen to When a Child Is Born. That's a great one. <laughs> that's your favorite. It is my fave. Um, so the little drummer boy was playing um, from their Christmas album, which is just so weird. The sort of the crazy situation with these lovely Christmas songs playing with something so awful is happening. And in this harrowing 16-minute recording, Leslie can be heard pleading for her life. They recorded her screams. She's begging to go home to mummy and saying, quote, please God, why? What are you going to do with me? End quote. Um, I'm not going to say any more from the tape or from the transcript which is available online. For those who can stomach it, you can read it, you can Google it. Um, and it does word for word explain what happened on that recording. But it, it's a really tough read and it's it, it's disturbing. And it really bothered me when I looked I ha- at it. I haven't read it, so yeah. I, I don't know. So this poor little girl, their youngest known victim was subjected to a terrifying ordeal before she was strangled with some string. And in the tape, Myra is clearly very much involved. She's shushing her. She's scolding her, telling her to shut up or I'll hit you one. That was a quote. Um, Amongst way worse, like more disgusting things. And once Leslie was dead, they washed her body, put it in a white sheet and drove it to the moors the next morning. So they slept there in the house with the body of a 10-year-old girl all night, which is insane. That is is she even 10? I thought she said she was 8. No, I think she was 10. Oh, 
anyway that's what so it said young. um it's, it's just so fucked up sorry guys but um and then they drove her to the moors dug a shallow grave and they put her naked body in it and just six months after they'd buried keith here too now poor leslie is is, is gone and joined him on the moors although um obviously keith has never been found mm. David Smith was Maureen's husband. Now, Maureen, if we all remember, is the sister of Myra. So he had a very troubled youth himself growing up. He had many brushes with the law for minor offences. You mainly got to do with burglary, quite similar actually to Ian. Mm. Um, but not. I don't think he got in quite as much trouble as Ian. Um, he had. He did have an incident in school. So he was. Something had happened in school and he ended up joining the boxing team or whatever the kind of type of physical sport, sport was at yeah. the time. That the word, I think it was boxing. Um, and, you know, he was actually at this time getting on really well at school. He was trying not to be involved with the gangs outside mm. and in the burglary and stuff. And something had happened and he got into an altercation with somebody in the, in the school. The headmaster had actually taken a big liking to him and had tried to have an intervention with them and talk to them about it. They ended up having an argument and he punched the headmaster in, in, <gasps> in the face. So this meant that he was expelled from that school. Right. Then it was hard to get him into another school. So then he was kind of back into falling in with these gangs again and doing this burglary. So he was kind of in and out for most of his childhood in that kind of mm. sense of these hanging out with these types of people. Now, he had grown up two doors down from first victim Pauline Reed. God, small world. He had even had a kiss with her when they were younger. Now, it never developed into anything more, but he did really like her, and they were actually friends growing up. He proposes to Maureen when, they, when she is expecting their first child. Myra was not initially a fan of David, and neither Myra, Nellie, or Ian attended their wedding. Myra was vocal to her sister, telling her that she was ruining her life by marrying David. Hang on a minute. Myra... Yeah. Thinks that her sister's boyfriend is a wrong one. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just like take a moment there? Sorry, when you stopped me there, I like, was like, I'm sorry. What's, but what's I, the problem? I had to because the actual barefaced cheek, Myra, who is literally the, the going out yeah. going out with one of the world's worst psychopathic child killers, thinks that her her sister's not really um pulled the, the best guy. Is that a joke? I wow. mean, yeah. Park kettle, right? Right. Anyway, however, on the evening of the wedding, Myra arrives over to David and Maureen's home saying that Ian has invited them both around to their house for drinks. So they went, and this was to be the start of a friendship between the four of them, but specifically a friendship between David and Ian. This was the start of Ian grooming David. So on the 25th of April, 1965, David and Maureen's baby, Angela Dawn, dies from cot death oh. yeah Myra went to the funeral and bought flowers as everybody would do but Ian stays in the car outside of course he does Myra asked them not to tell Ian that she'd been crying at the funeral <gasps> it's all so weird so many red flags uh, I mean literally red flags flying David told friends afterwards that he thought that this was the time that Ian thought that David would be convinced to be part of his monstrous plans. It was around this time that David and Maureen were rehoused near to Myra and Ian 
under a rehousing scheme in order to knock down the slums. Ian began to do the same thing he had done previously with Myra. He would take David and Maureen up to the moors with himself and Myra. They would have picnics and drink and laugh and just in general have a good time together. So David really appreciated this at the time. He thought that Ian was trying to distract him from the woes of dealing with the death of Angela Mm. or Angela Dawn. So Ian would invite David to the house to talk to him about the books and movies that he liked. It's all the same cycle. He would ask David to go away and study the books. David would write reports on the books and then they would discuss it together afterwards. Lord. Could you imagine? Me just going, Hannah, <laughs> just quickly. Well, to be fair, that is what we do every Can week, you actually. Can just have a little um, candies at Mein Kampf and then uh, come back with to me with a 10-chapter ten, uh, ten essay. essay. Is that all right? Literally. Yeah, okay. And then we'll discuss it. Yeah. Like, do one, love. Yeah. <laughs> um, remember that David is actually still in his teens at this stage. Uh, how old is he? He's about 17 to 19 around oh, this stage. Oh, okay, fine, yeah. I think he's probably at the later age of teens, maybe yeah. 19. But Ian is in his late 20s. Yep, again, another grooming tactic, though. Someone who's, you know, younger, younger. more impressionable, mm-hmm. easier to mould. Typical abusive tactic, isn't it? Manipulation. Exactly. Mm. And this all started off very slowly. He was grooming him in the same way that he had groomed Myra. Maya was actually getting jealous, though, at this stage. She was jealous of the attention that Ian was lavishing onto David, and she would try to keep them apart when she could, but Ian really wasn't having it. Mm. Ian knew that David was struggling with the death of his daughter, and he used this to his advantage. They would drink together to excess, and he would start telling David that he had killed before. He would say things to him like, you don't believe me, but it's true. He told David, you've even sat on their graves. Yeah. That those are like that's I think that's almost a word for word quote, but it's mm. basically and and, and it that. was true. Yes, it that was, was true. true. They did take people to go and sit on the victims' graves and pose for pictures on these graves. Not that the people going on there knew I had any idea. They were unbeknownst to them, but like picnicking on the graves of children. It's disgusting. Mm. He suggested that David and he should rob a bank. That Myra could be the driver of the de- getaway car. David agreed. And Ian gives him the task of staking out the local bank. David stakes out the bank all day, writing down anything noteworthy, such as the times that the staff are arriving, times they go for lunch, times that they leave for the day, the time that the armoured cash vehicle arrives at money to drop off, etc. So David took all this information back to Ian that evening, who took one look at the notepad, just glanced at it, and then threw it on the table and never to be looked at again. So he was just testing him. Probably waiting to see how much ex- like control he could exercise over him. How, how far he could take it. Absolutely. And the interesting, is, the interesting thing is that a few months earlier, just after Angela Dawn had passed away, Ian had told Myra that he actually wanted to kill David. Myra f- refused, saying that this would just be too upsetting for her sister. And she didn't want to do that to her. Mm. But... He was unpredictable with David. He used to play games like Russian roulette with him. And this is all to try and scare him and keep wondering, you know, what's he going to do next? Mm. Keep him, uh, Keeping himself really unpredictable that he wouldn't, like, that yeah. David was always on edge around him. Yeah, keep him on his toes. Absolutely. So on the evening of the 6th of October, 1965, Ian presented Mara with another track. Joan Baez's or Baez's version of "It's All Over Now, Baby Boy Blue" by Bob Dylan. So, here we go again. 
<clears throat> Edward Evans was 17 years of age on the night that he met Ian Brady. He was an apprentice electrician and a massive Man United fan. He had been out having a few drinks after work and had gone to Manchester Central Railway Station as there was a pub there that he liked. Now, upon arriving, he realised that the pub was closed. Ian spotted him and approached him. They chatted and Ian invited Edward back to his place for some drinks. He mentioned Myra and said that this was his sister, giving Edward this kind of false sense of security. Ian asked Myra to go to get David and Myra arrived on Maureen and David's doorstep at 11pm that night. Maureen was livid and asking her why she'd gotten them out of bed and Myra made some lame excuse about reminding her about an appointment that their grandmother had. And yeah. Then she asked David to walk her back, excuse me, to walk her back as it was dark and some of the street lamps were out. David agrees. So when they get back, she tells David to wait outside until she flicks the lights in the front on and off. And this wasn't unusual. She actually did this regularly when when he came to see Ian. This is one of Ian's, um, just another control. Mm-hmm. You know, people couldn't just walk up to his front door and walk in. Right. They'd have to stand outside until he was ready and he'd do things like flick the like lights. Like his fortress. Yeah, he's just an idiot, isn't he? Well, more than that, but yeah. Um, so the way David tells the story... Ian answered the door and asked David if he came for the miniatures. David has actually got no idea what he's talking about, but he nods his head. So Ian lets him pass and David makes his way to the kitchen where he could see there were miniature drink bottles oh. on the countertop. So in my head, I'm thinking... Like the, like a mini vodka, like a mini little... Yeah, or like fireball. maybe even kind of like your nagging size, but like smaller than a big bottle, if you know What's what a I mean. nagging? Oh God, I'm getting Irish here. A nagging <laughs> I thought is... you meant like, you know, the little like... So not the treat plain. size ones. In my mind, I'm not treat size. <laughs> treat just, size just alcohol for your handbag size. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, well, I like to have a nagging in my handbag. A nagging is, you know, the that that kind of size one. I don't know what you call it. Oh, that. okay, like like, like a quarter, I, I like a, like a quarter of vodka or something. So then the next one is like a shoulder, and I think that's like oh, three quarters. Do you mean that's a liter? But yeah, no, a liter okay. is a liter. Oh, okay. neither is a bottle. <laughs> okay, I can't do measurements, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, neither could I. Um, all I know is that they're a nag and a shoulder and a bottle is what we call it. Oh. And I know maybe we'll put that up on one of our Instagrams as a photo of what As they I are. always say, I learn something new every time I speak to you, Irish. <laughs> you know. Um. So anyway, he David goes into the kitchen, sees that there are these miniatures on the on the kitchen countertop. Then he hears screaming coming from the sitting room. So he quickly makes his way back to the sitting room and pushes the door open. Now inside, he sees Ian standing over Edward with an axe in his hand. Again, trigger warning. Ian raises this axe and swings it down time after time after time on Edward's head. So David says there was just blood. All he could see was blood everywhere. And Edward is slumping back against the couch. Edward then tries to make an escape by crawling under a table, but Ian grabs him by the ankle and drags him back oh, out oh my God. and continues to hit him with this axe. So David says that he knew he had to play along with this or that he was going to die yeah. too. And it's a smart move because he would have been killed. A hundred percent. This was a total test. Oh, a hundred percent. Ian told David to help him tie up the body and move it to Myra's bedroom upstairs. David 
does this and then helps to pa- the pair of them to clean up the mess downstairs with Ian proclaiming that this had been the messiest one yet. I know. Mm. It's so disturbing. David just wanted to get the hell out of there. But Ian said that they should all have some tea after the cleaning was done. Casual as you like. So David knew he had to stay and have this tea. And finally at 4am he says to Ian and Myra that he better go home before Maureen wakes up and wonders where he is. So they they think, yeah, you're you're right, you should go. Mm. He leaves and he said he left feeling like he'd managed to keep his cool. He said he had to control his walking pace as he all he wanted to do desperately was to break into a run to get away. Wow. So he also said that Myra was cool, calm and collected the whole time. He knew that they had both done this before. Even at one stage, Myra's grandmother shouts down the stairs, what's happening? Yeah, can we just also make a point of saying that this was all happening in, in the, the house, house that Myra shared with her grandmother. Now, this, when I was thinking of all this, I did swing around back to the story that M- Myra tells about him dosing her with the mother's, um, the grandmother's sleeping pills. Yeah. So I'm wondering if the grandmother took sleeping pills every night and that and knocked her out. And was just out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and also sometimes, obviously, with older people who are sort of, you know, very senior, they are sometimes hard of hearing, hearing. anyway. Yeah. Um, and if he kind of took Edward Evans by surprise, you know, with a blow to the head first, there probably wouldn't have been loads of chance for him to scream for very long. No. You know, um, but I mean, it's just mad because when you see this house and we are going to post a picture of this on our Instagram as well. It's like a two up, two down, right? Yeah, it's like, and there's neighbours nearby. Yeah, there's houses next to them. Like how this could happen and... And nobody heard or battered an eyelid. Mm. I mean, it's crazy. But I mean, just the thought that your granny's upstairs, like chilling in bed while you're, you're axe murdering a young boy. And we say this all the time, but it's just the brazenness of it. Complete brazen. And again, it obviously would show to David and to anyone looking, looking from the outside, looking in that these are pros now. They know what they're doing. Mm. They are not, you know, amateurs to this game. And they're so, they become complacent because they've done it so many times. Yeah. And I, this was, not my mic over. This was, Ian's way of trying to get David in. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm. Edward tried to escape. So, no, I've said all that part. Sorry. Sorry, did I throw you off there? It's just My bad. So, Ian had actually injured himself when the uh, with the axe when he was swinging it down. So, he later said that he would have gotten rid of the body and buried it on the moors immediately had mm. he not injured himself. But he couldn't, his ankle was hurting and he couldn't walk. An autopsy found that Edward had 14 accidents to the head and strangulation marks on his neck. He had been folded, he had been bound and folded into a kind of, like a bent in two, doubled over over Mm. position, just ready to be buried in a shallow grave at the moor. Wow. I know. After this shocking crime that David has just witnessed, he goes home to his wife, Maureen, um, completely shell-shocked, as you would be, sits down at the table and he asks for a cup of tea. You know, very British thing that we we do. I've actually got one over here. And he says, um, she, she knows that he's acting weird. And she's like, is everything okay? Like, what's going on? Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. But he is so shocked, he can't say anything yet. So he sits there at the table, he drinks his tea, and then he suddenly just throws up everywhere. Yeah. And he says to Maureen, I've just seen your sister 
and Ian murder this guy. And of course, at first, Maureen's like, what are you talking about? You know, in disbelief, as you would be. Um, and then um, he explains to her, no, this is real. This just happened. And she's like, right, well, we have to go to the police. But he's worried that they're outside his house, like that Ian and Myra are watching him. He's oh God, so paranoid. Be, yeah, and Like, rightly so. You'd of be course, terrified. You'd be absolutely petrified, especially after what you just witnessed. Nobody... Yeah. would expect to witness anything like that and so he's absolutely beside himself with with fear and he's petrified but he knows what he has to do so he waits till the sun comes up at 6 a.m and then as soon as there's a bit of daylight he runs out of the house armed with a knife because he thinks that ian is around every single corner oh my god he runs to a phone box and he calls the police when he calls the police, he tells them everything he's just seen. He says, I've just witnessed a, a young guy get murdered with an axe at this house and he gives the police the address. So the police are kind of not quite believing what they're hearing. Yeah, um, they're not sure, are they? They're not quite sure. It's not exactly a phone call that this small town of Huddersfield would ever have received. But they turn up to the phone box anyway and they come and pick David up. Now, after this shocking phone call that the police had received from him, they've driven to the phone box where they bring David to Hyde Police Station where he sat down and tells them this unbelievable story of everything he just witnessed the night before. Now, Superintendent Joe... No, sorry, Bob. <laughs> just throw Joe in there. Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Stally Bridge Police Division drive to Ian and Myra's home on Wardlebrook Avenue along with the detective sergeant. Now, disguised as a bread delivery man and wearing overalls over his police uniform, he asks Hindley, who answers the door, if her husband's home. Hindley says she doesn't have a husband and claims there is no man in her house. So knowing that she's lying... She's just full of it, isn't she? She's absolutely full of it. She's a practiced liar. She's a calm and controlled liar. She's scum, basically. So... They know she's lying, so Talbot identifies himself. And so Hindley begrudgingly has no choice but to step aside and let the police in. Now, leading him through to the living room, Talbot sees Brady, who was lying, chilling on the sofa in the middle of writing to his boss about an alleged ankle injury, which I'm sure he missed out that he got this ankle injury by murdering a young guy with an axe. I'm sorry, what's the plan with this letter? Like, is it going in the post? I think or? it's to get time off that's still paid, from what my understanding But I mean, was. it's not like now where you just shoot across an email. Like, well, no, they didn't have email then. Yeah, so, I mean... Um, pigeon yeah. post, more like, back then. But <laughs> What was he going to do? Pop it in the post? And then, like, they I, wouldn't know I, where he was I think it was. Days. I think it would have been something like that, probably. Or dropped it, or got Myra, probably got Myra to drop it. So, um, Talbot says he's investigating an act of violence yeah, involving... Sorry. Well, exactly. Talbot says he's investigating an act of violence involving guns that had re reportedly taken place the night before. But Hindley's denying anything untoward has happened and trying to act all meek and innocent, but she agrees to let the police have a look around their house. Now an inspection, now an inspection, walking through the house, room by room, Talbot happens upon one closed door. He goes to turn the doorknob, but it's locked. Now suspicions are really heightened and the police say to Hinley, can we have the key to this room? And she pretends that she's left it at work. But not buying her lies, they say, okay, well, we'll take you to get it then. And when suddenly Brady, who's been watching all of this happen, he quietly says to Hinley, just hand over the key. 
They unlock the door and inside they find the body of Edward Evans wrapped in plastic. The game was finally up for the two evil child killers. They immediately arrested Brady, allowing him to get dressed first. And as he does, Brady says, Eddie and I had a row and the situation just got out of hand. Already trying to control the narrative, as you can see. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a bad, like it was a good story. It it could have made sense. Yeah. Um, Two blokes drinking, get into a row. Yeah. It could have made sense, um, except obviously... David knows that that wasn't the truth. Yeah, and I think the way that he's tied up in that fold-over position yeah. is a bit odd, isn't it? It's very planned. Yeah, and I mean, just, like having the plastic sheeting ready, yeah, all bit, of that. Very it's just odd. It's a bit too um, familiar. Yes, it is. So at this stage, Hinley has not been arrested, but she does demand that she is allowed to go to the police station with Brady and take her dog. Once there, she refuses to say anything about Evan's murder. She just kept repeating that it was an accident. At the moment, they don't have any evidence to arrest her anyway. So they allow her to go home, but they say she has to come back to the station the following day. Now, over the next four days, she uses her last days as a free woman to cover their tracks. She finds an envelope. So annoying. Absolutely. And again, it shows how complicit she was. She finds an envelope of Brady's said to contain plans he'd written for bank robberies. Um, She throws that away. Um, Brady was sticking to a story that he and Evans had fought and was adamant that he and David Smith killed him and that Hindley had only done what she'd been told. Now, Smith had told police Brady had packed anything incriminating, such as dodgy books and stuff, into some suitcases. Now, these were later located at Manchester Central Railway Station. And inside these cases, there was notes, costumes, photographs and photo negatives and nine photos of Leslie Ann Downey, who's still missing. And she's naked with a scarf covering her mouth. And they find the audio tape of her murder. Leslie's mum had to later identify her daughter's voice from this recording. It's just, uh, I don't know how they made that, that woman listen to woman. that. poor woman. During inquiries, a neighbour of Hindley's 12-year-old, um, Patricia Hodges, tells police of the times that she was taken by Brady and Hindley to the moors and she helps police point out the favourite spots that they would frequent along the A635 road. So she's a smart young girl. Um, I mean, I can't even find my way to the train station. That's five minutes away. So amazing, this young girl's like, I can show you where Myra and Ian would take me. The fact that she was taken there as a child by them so many times, but I guess because she lived so close, it was a little too close for comfort. Exactly. Studying all the other photographs they discovered, along with the help of Patricia, who's a young girl, police immediately begin to search the area, strongly suspecting there are more bodies. And on 16th of October, of October their suspicions are confirmed they find an arm bone sticking out of the mud on an area which they had identified from pictures of the couple posing on the moors they suspected that this could be the body of John Kilbride as they discovered a book of his in Hindley's house with his name on it however it was later identified as the body of Leslie Ann Downey whose body was still identifiable her mum also was able to identify clothing that they had just dropped into the grave on top of her Smith had claimed Brady, David Smith, had claimed Brady boasted of photographic proof of many murders. And so asking the public to help them identify more spots on the moors shown in Brady's photos, the police make another discovery. On 21st of October, the body, the badly decomposed body of John Kilbride was found. He was identified by his clothing. 
and I apparently like he had these little winkle picker shoes on um which his mum recognized straight away this was five days after Leslie was discovered and he was just on the other side of the road from her burial site had been he well he'd been there for two years and obviously she'd been there a little less the police now know they've discovered a dangerous pair of serial killers they suspect there are more murders but they've called off further searches as winter starts to set in so initially Myra was not under arrest as police assumed that it was Ian who had murdered Edward so I'm just going back a little bit in time to tell about Myra's arrest because Hannah's done most of Ian's arrest so when questioned Ian cemented their assumptions by giving by trying to keep Myra out of it and implicating David Smith only police truly believed that Smith was involved and questioned him numerous times over coming weeks and months David told David told them everything he knew. He told them of the bank theft Ian had planned and how they had packed a suitcase with evidence but didn't know where the suitcase was. Um, now, and police just couldn't find it. It was not until one of the interviews that David mentioned how Ian liked train stations that police began to search those left luggage facilities in order to find this suitcase. Now, Police started calling every train station in Manchester and as Mahana said, it was found in Manchester Central Station and not only one, but two suitcases. So once the police got a hold of the suitcases and found all the evidence that Hannah went through, the photos of Leslie and Downey and the audio reels that Ian had recorded, this would be the downfall of Myra because Myra's voice is heard on yeah. these audio files too and it proved that she had been a willing accomplice in Leslie, Ann, Leslie Ann's murder. She can be heard shouting at Leslie Ann, who was terrified and crying for her mama. Please arrest Myra straight away after this, and they charge her with accessory to murder. This is when the iconic photo of Myra, her mugshot, is taken. Oh. Now, this photo, for those of you who haven't seen it, we will put it on our Insta and probably on our TikTok. But mm. she is a peroxide blonde, short hair. Big um, poofy hair, bouffant. Mm, yeah, that kind of style that was at the time. Dark eye makeup, big dark eyes. You know, eye bags. <laughs> but it's a really iconic shot. It is, and it's it's one that's used on so many true crime book covers. Mm. Whenever like there's pictures of like famous serial killers or, or certainly female serial killers, Myra's mugshot, that particular mugshot, pops up everywhere. All the time. It is so memorable. And also Ian Brady's one as well. But those ones are constantly used on the front cover of true crime books and um, on programs and things as well. We'll, we'll, we'll add it to the Instagram. So this is also where they find all those photos of Myra on the moors. And please think that these photos might bring might be trophies and photos of the grave sites. So that one photo of Myra with the dog puppet, mm. that's what makes them think this because they see Myra and initially it looks like she's looking at the puppy. But when they look in closer inspection... She's actually looking at the ground below her. And that's when they figure, somebody just says, she's not looking at that dog. No. And that's what makes them figure, and I think that was John Kilbride's, wasn't it? Yeah. John Kilbride's. um, Great. So please even take Myra's dog puppet to the vet to determine his current age. Oh no, I hate it. To try to date that photo. Yeah. So they can see, is this this timeline matching up? Unfortunately, puppet never wakes up from the anesthetic. So, yeah. Another innocent victim. I know. Now, ironically, Myra screams that they're all murderers when she finds out. I mean, those in glass houses, right? Yeah. 
Now, presented with this concrete evidence of the tape recording, Brady has admitted to taking the photos of Leslie, but claims she'd been brought to the house by two men who had driven away with her after that assault was recorded. Of course it did, Ian. But by 2nd December, Ian Brady has been charged with three counts of murder of John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. Hindley was charged with the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans and for harbouring Brady, knowing that he had killed John Kilbride. Mm. Their trial began on the 19th of April 1966 at Chester Assizes. And by this time, the story of this killer couple was worldwide news. I mean, this was huge. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but this was something that... Anna? No, I actually it wasn't, It must have been guys. pretty soon I'm, after, I know, I'm, I know I'm a little over the hill, but I'm not <laughs> that old. And yeah, it was something that, because it was so unheard of, Every single media station, all the news from all over the world were here to watch this. And everyone, um, you know, wanted their blood. Everyone wanted a piece of these two. Everyone was so so. outraged because this is not just murders, which are bad enough as it is. These are child murders. Mm. And horrific. And the fact that she was a woman really added insult to injury. They they couldn't understand. Because again, it was so unheard of how a woman could be so active in carrying out these crimes. People just couldn't get their heads around it. No. And you saw that in a lot of interviews, like that was kind of what was focused on. Yeah. A lot of, even like the parents saying, she was a woman though. Because you're expected to have more of that maternal instinct. instinct. Yeah. And back then, what were the other examples of this happening? There was none. Yeah. So it was almost like a alien to people, wasn't it? So they were actually given the same solicitor, the two of them, meaning they could meet up before their trial. And they used this opportunity to exchange coded messages these included how they loved each other and how much joy these murders that they committed together had brought them. How very romantic. Just such awful yeah. people. And actually, the people, the local people and people in, in Britain hated them so much that they had to design a courtroom specifically prepared with bulletproof glass because so many people wanted to kill them. Like, that's how how bad it was back mm. then. Hindley's defense was she'd been bullied into the abductions by Brady and she hadn't carried out any murders and this is the story she stuck to until the day she died. This vile pair both pleaded not guilty to all charges. The media interest was absolutely huge at this point around the world and the fact that neither of these monsters showed any remorse throughout made the public hate them even more than they already did. The tape of Leslie um, was played in court showing Hindley's enthusiastic involvement and causing many people to break down in tears. And all the while, Hindley sits there completely unmoved and completely blank-faced, just emotionless. They actually had to have decoy cars to smuggle Hindley and Brady in and out of court, fearing attacks from the public. And one time, Terence Downey, who's Leslie's dad, attacked one of the cars, not not knowing it actually contained a decoy. Mm. And you can't blame him. Mm -mm. The public were out there for their blood, like I said, and so they took all the precautions to make sure the two of them survived this court case. Sometimes, you know, we just wish that they hadn't. Um, on the 6th of May, 1966, Hindley was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans and found guilty for harboring a criminal. Um, 23-year-old, she's only 23 now, reviled killer Hindley was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. Brady, who tested up testified for eight hours claimed that someone else had killed edward in court he remains yeah he changed his story again 
In court, he remains calm and arrogant. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences and sent to HM Prison at Durham and Hindley was taken to HM Prison Holloway. Justice Kenton Atkinson, who was the judge, and in his closing remarks, he describes um, the murders as truly horrible and the pair as two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. He also called Brady wicked beyond belief and said he saw no possibility of any reform for him. Though he didn't think that that was necessarily the same for Myra um, once she was away from Brady's influence. But I beg to differ. Mm, you, you, I think you're I not going to train that out of anyone. No. So prison was actually a very dangerous place for Myra. She was often the victim of brutal attacks by other inmates, which would leave her on the hospital ward for weeks at a time. Initially, she kept her stream of letters up to Ian. And some of them were still coded. So the coded letters had a line underneath the date. So that would let each other know that there was a code within the letter. Mm. And it was the seventh and eighth word of each sentence would create the code. Wow, sounds complicated. (laughs) Quite often, the coded parts of the letters were stories of rape and torture. And it was all in an effort to keep Ian um, stimulated, for want of a better word. Myra started a relationship with Patricia Kearns, a former nun turned prison officer, if you don't mind. Crazy. Yeah, you didn't hear, you didn't see that one coming, did you? No. Nope. Um, she was one of the prison officers who guarded Myra. So shortly after their relationship started, she, Myra cut all ties with Ian and stopped responding to his letters. This is when she and Patricia came up with a plan for Myra to escape. So Patricia was an accomplice in this and her job was to steal the keys and get a copy of them made in a plaster cast or a mould and then the two of them would escape or Myra would escape and she would go with her. So they did get caught and Patricia received six years for her part in this escape plan. Funnily enough, the relationship did not last long after this. In 1980, Myra applied for parole citing that she had been groomed by Ian she had strong support from people with influence, such as Lord Longford, who campaigned on her campaigned on her behalf for years on end. She must have been extremely charming because these are stories that she's like of her telling and developing these close relationships with these mm-hmm. people of influence constantly. There's even a story of when the warden of the prison brings her out for a day with the warden, Myra, and a friend of the warden. They go to a local park and let Myra walk around the local park like a... Shocking. Like a, like free, a free person. Like a free person, yeah. Um, so when the public heard about this, there was absolute uproar. Somebody actually recognised her. Um, and, and this is how famous she was, that somebody yeah. actually recognised her nearly 20 years later. Yeah. Um, the warden says this was all in an effort to see if Myra could be re-socialised re- into society and that she'd made an error of judgement. I mean, as a bloody big error. So the parents of Leslie Ann campaigned to keep the parole from happening and in May 1985 the parole board said that Myra should spend at least another five years in the prison system. So in June of 1985 when Brady admitted to the murder of two more victims it actually sealed Myra's fate that she would never be eligible for parole. Um, It was the ultimate betrayal and Myra finally admitted to she not admitted but she was more open about what her involvement was. Mm. She didn't necessarily admit it to... Everything. Yeah, she kept a lot back. 
But she said that she did want to help them find the bodies now. So she agreed to go to the moors and show the police where the bodies were. So it was in this effort to prevent the media getting a hold of her and swarming her and all of this, they actually bring her in from a different route. Mm. And there's a route that she didn't know. So when they get there, she's really disorientated mm. and actually just can't find her way around. Right. So it's actually a bit of a dud and they're like, they, they end up going back with nothing. And I think they do it again one more time a little bit later. And again, it just doesn't work yeah. out. Um, and this time I think they flew in a helicopter. She had a disguise and all sorts. But oh, actually, I think, sorry, I say a disguise. From what the photo I saw, it looked like she had a full balaclava. Wow. Like, and only her. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious which one it was. Yeah. Do you know? I mean, I'll be honest, if I saw someone in balaclava, I'd be like, what the hell are they doing? I know, but if you knew that Myra was out in the moors, you'd be yeah. having to guess. Yeah, That absolutely. person being escorted with the balaclava on. Well, yeah, 100%. <laughs> That's probably her. It's not the most subtle of, of disguises. <laughs> I mean, come on, lads. Um, so, Myra did write letters to some of her victims' families. In one letter to the parents of Leslie Ann, she swore that she did not torture her. Just lies, lies, lies. She promised that she would not look to be paroled again. Within months, she had again applied for parole. So she was just full of it to the day she, to the day she died. Uh, Myra died in prison on the 15th of November 2002 in West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. And she died of respiratory failure. She was a big smoker, I think, 40 yeah. cigarettes a day type thing. So it finally got the best of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the story of, of Myra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the horrible, nightmarish story of Myra. Mm. So details of Brady's life behind bars don't sound like he had the easiest ride at times. You will be happy to know. Yep. He was apparently constantly petrified to exercise with other inmates for fear of being attacked and the constant verbal abuse. At times, the daily abuse apparently left him in a state of endless dread and foreboding. Meanwhile, the police were still strongly suspecting him of other murders of children that they hadn't discovered yet. He was at Durham Prison for five years and he was kept in isolation to begin with as he was a notorious name in prison and a target. He claimed he studied psychology and German and said he would, quote, memorise whole pages of Shakespeare and Plato and other people and recite them all to myself whilst walking up and down and exercising in my cell. Wow, Ian, you are so so smart. I know, honestly. Later, he was diagnosed as a psychopath. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And later as a paranoid schizophrenic. Now, this is why he was sent to a secure hospital at Ashworth, Merseyside. He liked to name drop to journalists or anyone who would listen to him drivel on about the famous Cat Ayers he'd spent time with in prison, like the Crays, you know, the Cray twins, Mm -hmm. the Great Train Robbers and John McIver. And in 1985, Fred Harrison, a journalist, had eight meetings with Brady at another prison, Gartree Prison. um, And he actually got on quite well with Brady. He, this is when Brady confessed to him that he killed 16-year-old Pauline Reed and 12-year-old Keith Bennett. This okay. is the first time he said this. This was that what I was saying then. Yeah, two exactly. Victims, However, once the story was published in a Sunday newspaper, police could not persuade Brady to return to the moors with them to locate the bodies. This was 20 years after the victims were killed. Um, and in fact, when police visited Brady in his cell with the newspaper in hand, Brady ever the manipulator, refused to speak to them and so they had to leave. The poor mothers of Pauline and Keith had been given some hope now that Ian 
still wanted to control the situation and he wouldn't help and they just thought for a moment there you know they were going to find their children yeah Yeah. this is when myra was pursued for the confession and thinking she was obviously the easier one to break and more likely to to confess eventually ian would talk after hinley confessed again um because again he wanted to take control and he didn't want her to get released and so he returned to the moors to help the search in 1986 and 1987 and pauline's remains were finally found in june 1987 on saddleworth moor just inches under the mud and they first saw her white stiletto shoe um, that she had worn that night sticking out of the surface the white shoes that she so wanted to wear to that disco Tragically, despite many trips to the morgue, Keith Bennett's body was never recovered. His mum, Winnie, spent years tirelessly searching for him, campaigning for new searches, contacting Brady to try and get help from him, laying flowers at the moors, searching herself. And sadly, she died in 2012, never knowing where her son was buried. And in 1974, I'm going back a bit here, Brady was sent to Wormwood Scrubs where he began a hunger strike demanding to be moved and allowed to mix with other prisoners. As he lost weight, he was moved to the hospital wing where he stayed even after he started eating again. And this is where he said to have had sex with vulnerable young mental health patients, some as young as 15 years old. What? Yep. The prison medical warden um, said that he takes an unusual interest in any adolescent inmate here who's located nearby and not for wholesome reasons. So he was a danger still. The staff actually had to move boys off of the floor that he was on to get them away from him. That's how much of a predator he was. Why wasn't he just sent back? Because it was a hospital. And and he still, you Put know... Put him on the hospital wing and the... Yeah, I know, I know. It's crazy. He was allowed to watch TV with other patients and he was given duties, enabling him to move on the floors freely. So like he was cleaning toilets and cleaning showers. So he had access to different boys on different floors. There was a huge uproar about this when this happened apparently. So he remained manipulative and arrogant wherever he was incarcerated. For years, he campaigned and complained and he threatened in order to get his way and to cause trouble as much as he could for the authorities. Um, Myra stopped writing to Brady quite early on Um, and as we also know which we've mentioned in a few other episodes Ian wrote a book in prison called The Gates of Janus um, and and he's basically saying how he has a right a divine right to kill should he choose to and then people should be allowed to do that um, in not so many words um, he was constantly doing hunger strikes. He constantly played games with the police. I and bet it Winnie wasn't Bennett. in not so many words. I bet it was in thousands, thousands of words. Thousands of words, exactly. It always is. They can't stop themselves. Nope. Narcissist. Yeah. So he died at the age of 79 on 15th of May 2017 from car pulmonal and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Excellent. Woo, thank You've you. You've done that so well. It's been a long day. <laughs> it was apparently a slow death. So this is good. He took the secrets of Keith Bennett's. He took the secrets of Keith Bennett's burial site to the grave with him, and Keith still has never been found, which breaks my heart. His remains were cremated in separate in a separate cremator, which was professionally cleaned afterwards to ensure that all of his remains were removed, so they couldn't contaminate anyone else's in the future. That's how much oh, he wow. was he was despised. Um, and such was the revulsion that people felt for him even in his death and his ashes were dumped at sea in the middle of the night via liverpool marina um and not on the moors as he had wanted them to be well done i like that 
and good thinking everybody with that death in 2017 brought the end of the tale of two of the most horrific murders mm. murderers in in british history and yeah. i even get chills saying that so thank god we don't have to read about them Any again because i'm so happy about that um and you know it, it's they're just a few killer couples um that kind of came after myra and, and ian we have you know the ken and barbie killers that we mentioned fred and rose west another british couple which um happened in the 90s yeah we will do them at some stage we'll we'll have to do those Mm. uh the sunset strip killers Mm -hmm. who um was carol bundy and oh gosh i can't remember his name off the top of my head now you're the one who remembers this stuff i know i normally do but i told you it's been a long day um and the bernies uh they were in australia they used to get their victims to dance to the dire straits album oh gosh, yeah, yeah. We, we'll have to cover those as well and also bonnie and clyde they're a very famous killer couple um and you know there are some other ones it's all comes under the folly adieu umbrella of the madness shared by two twisted minds yeah. doesn't it i think we spoke about that in the ken and barbie killer episode too, yeah didn't we? yeah well guys um that is it for this week um I want to say I'll sleep well tonight, but I probably won't. I hope you guys do, though. And uh, do join us next week for episode 20. Oh, my goodness. So exciting. So exciting. So please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Uh, email us at don'tblamethemum at gmail.com and send us suggestions. And please tell your friends to listen as well because we really appreciate all the support. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week for episode 20. Bye. Bye. Bye.